The record for climbing El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, free climbing, one hour, 58 minutes and seven seconds. One hour, 58 minutes and seven seconds. Um, that record was set by Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell. And I don't know who did that horrible job of photoshopping because some of those photos obviously weren't accurate. They were close. A lot of the photo was accurate. But there was just enough difference there that they weren't the real deal. They were a counterfeit. They were a fake. So a couple of things are true. One, I need to find somebody better to do my photoshopping. And I also need to run spell check when I put that together because I misspelled mountain. So, I mean, uh, hopefully that doesn't kill any credibility I may have already started with uh, this morning. So what in the world does that have to do with a study of Galatians? It's a good question. You see, Paul was dealing with something in the Galatian church. He was dealing with a counterfeit gospel. It was close. It had a lot of the same ingredients. It was, I mean, it was almost there. But it was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you will, turn with me in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to look at what Paul was dealing with. We're going to see where Paul addresses the need to identify the authenticity in the gospel message. And he warns about any forgery or any addition to that message that makes it almost true. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And we have a tradition here at Bay Area. When I finish reading, we're going to say the words, the very words. That is to differentiate my very fallible words from the infallible words of Scripture. So if you would, stand with me. And let's read Galatians chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 8. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Let's pray over the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that your word, written 2,000 years ago to a church in Asia Minor, 
is just as applicable to our lives today as it was the day that it was inspired and given to Paul. Help us to drink from your word today, Father God, and walk away refreshed and well supplied for what you will bring to us this week. Help us to look like you as we touch people's lives. In your heavenly name, amen. <coughs> Pardon me. Last week, Pastor Brian did a great job of explaining who Paul is and who Saul is and how they're the same person. And um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time covering that same territory, but I did want to bring up something that is very real. Galatia is very similar to Houston. You see, Galatia was at a point in the Roman Empire that was very multi multicultural in its population. It was known for its ports and its trade or commerce. It was a place of regional power and influence. And it was a place where many religions and worldviews were represented in the population. Paul had gone to Galatia in his first missionary journey and had planted churches throughout the region. That happened roughly in A.D. 46. Keep in mind that Paul was not just a Jew. To use Paul's term, he was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was the most strict, in the, he was a member of the most strict of Judea, uh, uh, sector of Judaism that there was. In Paul's way of thinking, the way you adhere to the law was the example of your piety and your relationship with God. That was your litmus test. How well do you keep the law? So for Paul to tell these Galatian believers that the law was not the only, was that the law was not the pathway to a relationship with God this was a seismic shift and it was huge If we don't understand Saul the Pharisee we're not going to fully understand Paul the apostle This Shift in worldview was so Herculean that it's something that we, it would be something like this a vegan becoming a meditarian. Maybe a conservative voting socialist. A Texans fan rooting for the Cowboys. An Astros fan rooting for the Rangers? And Aggie having hook'em horns on their bumper. This was a world-changing shift for Paul. It changed everything because he realized that Jesus Christ had fulfilled the law. And he was the way to have a relationship with God. So what, is exact, what exactly is Paul saying here? Paul is declaring to this church made up of Jews and Gentiles that come from literally all parts of the world and now live in this society that was a melting pot of worldviews that there is only one way to have relationship with God. He is emphatically saying that a gospel that is Jesus plus anything is false. A Jesus plus gospel is is no gospel at all. He was countering a doctrine that had crept into the church 
in its early stages of development globally. Again, Paul started the churches in Galatia at about A.D. 46. He wrote this letter, most people think, in A.D. 48 to A.D. 50. So in just two years, in a world that didn't have mass media, didn't have Facebook, didn't have Twitter, didn't have LinkedIn, didn't have any mass communication device at all, the gospel that Paul had preached in this remote part of the world had already become polluted by a false doctrine of Jesus and. And he was countering this. Paul wrote the Galatians, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing to us to remind us that the gospel of Jesus stands alone, and our salvation is not supported or augmented or developed by anything we bring to the table. Our salvation depends 100% on Jesus Christ and his grace, period. And if we add to it, it is no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why are we spending time talking about this today? Roughly 2,000 years later, we don't have a Galatian mindset. I mean, none of us have a problem not following the Jewish law. Anybody like bacon? Anybody like crawfish? I'm with you. Anybody like shrimp? We like our shrimp wrapped in bacon. We don't have a problem not following the law. So we don't have a problem with this, right? Well, in the words of that great philosopher Lee Corso from College Game Day, not so fast. Because I think if we look at our mentality, we will see that we too can be very Galatian in our thinking. You see, because we have a problem with grace, because grace is humiliating, and I'm prideful. The message that the Galatians had been deceived by was close to being the gospel of Christ, but it was not the gospel of Christ. Just like some of the photos in that short video, they were close to being accurate, but they were mildly changed. This gospel of Christ that had been modified had become this, this idea that it was Jesus plus my actions. That the main ingredient really wasn't Jesus at all. It was that I had to work my way to this salvation. But before we get too judgmental about those foolish Galatians, we need to take a look at ourselves. Because we can be guilty of a Jesus plus salvation doctrine as well. We can really like the idea of some works being included. We like the idea of my actions and my sacrifice and my piety and my goodness playing a role in my salvation. Because then it's all about me. And I like me. We can and, and many times are very Galatian in our thinking. We want to control the outcome, and we despise weakness. I don't think that's necessarily an American thing. I think it's a human thing. We hate to acknowledge the fact that we're helpless. But when it comes to the gospel of Christ, 
That's exactly what we are. We are helpless. There is no hope without him. And it's not until we recognize that that we will not fully grasp the importance of his message. You see, the gospel of Christ absolutely demands that we surrender our pride, our control, our self-dependence, and our reliance on anything else. Jesus clearly states this in John 14, 6, when he says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not open to a lot of debate. No one comes to the Father except through me. He tells us we must forsake all other things that we, that we hold dear, cry out to him, and he alone will save. The grace of God and the forgiveness of my sin is humiliating because I have to admit a few things. First, I'm a sinner. I'm not good. I'm not. I am helpless to rectify this debt of sin. I cannot do it. And if I don't have Christ, I am lost. I have to admit that and cast myself on Christ's mercy. Paul stated this well in Romans chapter 10. When Paul said, starting with verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You see, the gospel was simple. It's not complicated. It's clean. So why do we have such a problem with grace? Why do we have a problem with a Jesus alone gospel? Well, some of it's because we like control. Thank you very much. I would like to decide how things work. And I would like to have a God that I could call in when I need him but he doesn't interfere with my day too much. From the beginning, this desire for control is what caused us to fall in the first place. We wanted God's job. We wanted control. Just look at the stories from the, and the lessons from the Old Testament. The story of Adam and Eve, Esau and Jacob, Joseph and his not-so-loving brothers, Moses and his criminal history, and the list goes on and on. The problem is, in every one of these stories, and in our story, when we try to take control, we mess things up. It doesn't work that well. Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. Esau lost his blessing, and Jacob lost his brother. Joseph had to spend time in prison, and his brothers lived a lifetime of guilt. Moses lost 40 years of his life. And had to go from being a prince to being a fugitive goat herder. You see, the story of humanity shows us clearly that we are not built for control. We want God's job, but we don't have the tools. And when we try to take control, we mess it up. We weren't built to carry the load. 
When we try to make the gospel of Christ anything other than Jesus and Jesus alone, we again are trying to take control. We want to be able to say that it depended on us, and in some ways it happened our way. The issue is the law shows we cannot handle being in control. The law clearly shows that we can't live up to it. But when all we have is grace, we have to come to terms with the fact that our rules don't matter. But I like rules. Rules give me a checklist. I like my checklist because I can grade you with my checklist. And I can see if you're good. I like grace for me and rules for thee. That's how I like this to work. When we have a set of rules we have to live by in order to be right with God, we're back to being the key to the puzzle. You see, Jesus was aware that we would do this. This isn't new. This isn't a problem that we've developed. This is a problem with humanity as a whole since the beginning of time. And if you look in Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus confront this. Starting in verse 17, it says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him loved him. See, too often we just keep reading there. Jesus saw him. He knew his name. He read his mail. And he loved him. He loved him so much that he wasn't willing to let him stay where he And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've all heard this story before. This is the story of the rich young ruler, right? I mean, this is that story that we cast aspersions on those other people who are wealthy, who have the bigger house, the nicer car, the bigger boat, bigger truck, whatever it is that we're measuring by. And they love their money too much. And that could be a problem. I don't believe the point of this message right here is how much money the guy had in his wallet. I don't think wealth is the issue. I think what Jesus is talking about is value. Because if the point of this message is wealth, guess what? We are all in trouble. 
Because whether you like it or not, in the span of the world, this is the top 5% right here. You live in it. We're all wealthy. So if the problem is money, we're all in trouble. I don't believe that's the point of this. I think the problem that the young, rich young ruler had was value. You see, he valued his works. I've kept all those since I was a kid, God. I'm, I'm good. Literally, we got a deal. I do the right things. I go to heaven. He didn't value what Jesus valued. It's kind of like this. In what I do for a living, I travel quite a bit, sometimes internationally. It has happened on occasion that I will land in some country and I've forgotten to stop by an ATM or what have you to get some money of that country. And I'm dying for a cup of coffee. Now, I'm glad that America has transplanted a lot of things around the world. One of those is Starbucks, okay? So I will walk up to Starbucks in some other country, and I will pull out my wallet, and I will offer them dollars. And they'll say, we don't take dollars. So I pull out my American Express. I never leave home without it. And they're, we don't take American Express either. I could offer to pay them 10 times the amount of money they want for that cup of coffee in dollars or with my American Express, and they're not going to take it because I don't have the currency of the kingdom. They don't value what I'm offering. And when we try to make our relationship with God based on our works, or we try to exclude somebody else from being a part of the kingdom based on what we think their works are, we're using the wrong currency. We're not even using the currency of the kingdom. We cannot buy our admission into the kingdom with our works. It is Christ's work that pays that price. That's the currency of the kingdom. And we have to be very mindful of the fact that we are valuing the things that Christ valued. If we want to be part of Jesus' kingdom, we must gain entry by virtue of the currency that is recognized in his kingdom. That currency is simply faith in him and recognition of our need for a savior, his grace in redeeming us from where we are and the act of repentance in walking with him. So what are we supposed to do with all this? This is all great. It's Sunday morning. We're all sitting here. We had our appointment at church. We're good, right? If this doesn't work for you on Tuesday morning, this is a waste of time. So how do I apply this for my week where God has me in the circle of influence I'm in? If you'll remember the video that we showed earlier, there was a picture there of Alex Honhold literally hugging the mountain. If you'll notice, there's no space between him and the mountain. He is, he is as close to that rock face as he can get. He's doing everything he can to be one with that mountain because he knows that if he gets any space between him and the mountain, it's not going to work out so well. I am a father of two kids. More importantly now, I'm a grandfather to three awesome grandsons, but that's not the point of this. When my kids were being raised and in those wonderful teenage years, so easy, 
had all the answers. They would ask me questions on occasion. Dad, do you really mean that if I do X, whatever X is, that I don't go to heaven? Do you really mean if I do this, that I lose my salvation? Do I do this? Do I do that? All these questions. And finally, I got tired of, of answering that question because the real root of the question is how far from God can I get and still be okay? And we can all laugh, but we ask that question as adults too. And so finally one day, I looked at my kids and I said, you know what, I'm not going to answer that question anymore because I'm, I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life. I want to tell you about climbing a mountain. There are times when you climb a mountain that the ledge is this wide. And then there are times that the ledge is a toehold. That's all you've got. I can promise you one thing. If you are on a part of the mountain where the ledge is this wide and you want to get out here close to the edge of the ledge, that's where the ground gets shaky. And you can fall. But if all you're ever worried about when you're climbing that mountain is how close to the mountain can I get, and you're always hugging the mountain, it doesn't matter how wide the ledge is. So from now on, you ask me those questions. All I'm going to ask you is a question. All I'm going to do is ask you a question in return. Do what you want. I just need to know, are you hugging the mountain? Are you as close to God as you can get with this decision? If doing what you're wanting to do will put space between you and God, then you know your answer. And I would get this. <gasps> Does everything have to be a life lesson? Pretty much. That's how it works. So my question to you is when you go through doing what you're going to be doing this week, Watching whatever you're going to watch, reading whatever you're going to read, listening to whatever you're going to listen to, doing that thing at work that you do, getting involved in that conversation, posting that thing you want to post. I just want to ask you one question. Are you hugging the mountain? Well, watching that, whatever it is, put space between you and God, or will it drive you into the mountain? And then make your decision accordingly. Another thing that I think we can use from Galatians chapter 3 is we can quit being people of ditches. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I was a kid, we bought our first tractor. It was a farm all. We were poor farmers. So it was bought in an auction. We couldn't even afford to have the thing uh, hauled to the farm. So my father drove it through the hills of Missouri about 20 miles to get to our house. And when he got about a half mile away... He let me hop up in the driver's seat. I'd driven pickups. I'd done other things on the farm. Tractor's no problem, right? So this, if you don't know tractors, it had a high side to low side transmission. It was in the high side of probably six gear. I don't know how many four gears it had. But I let off that clutch, and that tractor took off. And he's standing beside me. Now, this is an old tractor. It didn't even have fenders. So he's just standing on the axle next to me. And all of a sudden, that steering wheel had a little bit of play in it, okay? And I started bouncing between the ditches. And the knobs on that tractor tire started eating away at the backside of my father. 
This could have turned out really badly. It didn't. I'm alive. Um, and he is too. Um, but I ran that tractor into a tree in one of the ditches. And it stopped the tractor. And we both gave that kind of nervous. <laughs> and he let me walk home. What in the world does that have to do with Galatians? I was spending my time on that tractor bouncing between the ditches and all I was doing was making it worse. You see, some people will read Galatians and they'll hear Paul say it's all about liberality. Once I say the magic words, I'm good. I can live any way I want to. That is not what Paul is saying here. But then there are others of us who will get really tied up on our list of rules and we're going to get real legalistic and we're going to have this checkbox that everybody has to match. That's not what Paul's saying either. In fact, Paul, if you go on to chapter 5 in Galatians, he puts this very, very clear. Chapter 5 in Galatians, verse, starting with verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you, will and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you do not, that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What Paul's saying is that both reactions, both ditches we can wind up in are wrong. We have been called to a walk with Christ. When you go for a walk with somebody, you don't walk in the ditch. You walk on the road and you walk at his pace. That's what we've been called to. Finally, we should be known for what we are for. I'm afraid that the church sometimes gets this reputation for the long, the long list of things we're against. The things we're going to boycott or whatever. But I think that we should really look at that differently. I used to coach football here at Bay Area. I helped uh, Don Hamilton with the offensive and defensive line. And I remember one uh, hot summer day we were out there and the boys were pushing the sled. If you've never pushed the sled in football, it's a glorious thing. It's wonderful. Um, but 
I heard one of the boys say something about drinking. Now, I'm not wanting to get into a, a discussion on drinking, but he said, dude, we don't drink because we're Baptists, and because we don't drink, we're Christians. I stopped the drill. Out in the middle of the heat on that August day, I had everyone pull off their helmet. I said, guys, we gotta, we got to hit something more important than this sled right now. What saves us is not what we don't do. We are not Christians. We are not believers in Christ. We are not written down in the book because we didn't do something. It's because of what he did. We can't be good enough. None of us. But if you have not acknowledged the fact that you desperately need a Savior and that he and he alone can cover the cost of your sin, you can check all the boxes you want. You can call yourself a Baptist. You're lost. But once you ask him to be Lord of your life and you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, his grace covers your sin. That's the difference. That's the gospel. I think it's time that we learn how to be known for what we're for because we're for the things Christ was for. Paul clearly states this again in chapter 5. He says, love, joy, patience, uh, love, joy. That was not me. I was afraid it was my phone. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I believe we need to develop the reputation for being for the things that Jesus was for and praying that God would break our hearts for the things that break his. In conclusion, we're going to be praying up here in a second and singing a song. I want to challenge you to do something this week. I want to challenge you to get alone with God. And I'm going to challenge you to ask him some questions. I want to challenge you to ask him some questions and then do something that's extremely un-American. Be quiet. Be patient. And listen. Ask him, am I hugging the mountain or am I trying to be as close to the edge as possible in what I do, say, read, watch, and occupy my time with? Ask him, Am I walking with you at your pace? Or am I in the ditch of legalism or abusing your grace? Ask him, Father, am I known for what you're known for? Does what breaks your heart break mine? Or am I concerned more with my rights? You see, I believe wholeheartedly that if you'll get along with God and you'll ask those questions and you'll listen, the Holy Spirit's going to talk. Because just like Jesus saw the rich young ruler and loved him, he loves you too. So we're going to be down front with some of our prayer 
uh, team and, and when we're singing, if you would like to come down because something about this has let you know I'm not walking the way I should, we'd love to pray with you. But I also want to recognize that there may be some folks here today that would say, hey man, this is all cool. This whole walking with God thing. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is. You're not here by mistake. If that's you, We'd love for you to come down as well. We would love to have the opportunity to pray with you and introduce you to this Jesus who sees you and loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you see us and you love us. How we are, where we are. And you complete the work in us, Father God, through your grace. Help us to live lives that show the appreciation we have for the fact that you paid a debt we couldn't. And help us show that appreciation by living your example well in the places you have planted us. God, I just simply ask that we would look like you. In your heavenly name.